And the word of God says, all that has breath, praise the Lord. I think we're ju- we were just transported to heaven just then. It's good when people, God's people sing. In fact, we have been given voices so we can sing to the Lord. Okay, this morning, let's take our Bibles. There's several passages I'm going to be looking at this morning. Well, let's take our Bibles and turn to actually two sections today, three sections. Uh, I'm still springboarding off the passage in 1 Peter chapter 5, uh, verse number 9, but resist him, that's the enemy, Satan, his minions, firm in your faith. That's where I've been for several weeks. We've been looking at the ways to resist the enemy. So we'll be looking at 1 Peter 5, 9, Ephesians chapter 6, verse uh, 10 onwards, and then also some Old Testament passages, so get ready to use your Bible this morning. Uh, but before I look at these things, let's, uh, let's have a word of prayer. Lord, thank you uh, this morning for bringing us here to worship you, to sing praises to your name. I pray, Lord, that those uh, words that we sung would resonate throughout the week, that they would be in our mind and heart. Lord, that we would always want to, uh, from Sunday all the way to next Sunday, have an opportunity just to lift up your, our voices from our heart to thank you, to rejoice in you, um, to pray to you, uh, to know that you are our God and um, you are our Savior through Christ. And we want our lives to count for you. So, Lord, we want to give ourselves over as living sacrifices because we know it's our reasonable service of worship because of your mercy, because you didn't give us something we deserved. You gave us your grace. And so, Lord, um, don't let us be pushed into the world's mold, but let us be transformed by the renewing of your word so we would know the good and the acceptable and perfect will of God. And we ask you that for this morning in Christ's name. Amen. So this morning as I have been going through 1 Peter, we have been looking at Christians' obligation for resistance. And so far, from the exhortation to, from humility to vigilance to now exhortation, uh, we, the result would be stability if we are resisting the enemy properly, uh, stability and victory over Satan's strategies and tactics that are against us. I have been looking at five ways. Actually, I have increased that to eight ways. Uh, and so I will be adding three more, and we'll be looking at that after I get done the, with the one this morning. And, of course, we already looked at the first one, and the first one, uh, was that of being resist in the faith that God has given us the body of truth he's given the church, the word of God from Genesis to Revelation, uh, so we would understand it and know it so we can have the light of Scripture to be able to detect the darkness and half-truths and lies of the enemy. And then secondly, we have looked at uh, discerning, uh, resisting the enemy by discerning our own strengths and weaknesses and tendencies towards sin uh, because we want to recognize our own patterns of sin 
and there, that's where we would uh, know what we need to work on. And uh, as, we, as they are exposed more and more by Scripture, by the Spirit of God bringing them to our mind, then we would be able to discern those patterns of sins, lay aside those patterns of sin, and put on righteousness. And, of course, that, lead, that would lead us to the third one, is that to resist by maintaining a sanctified imagination. Uh, the imagination could be fed by bad things or good things. Uh, what we feed the imagination uh, is of maximum importance in the pursuit of kingdom righteousness. And so the redeemed mind is continually, or at least should continually be transformed and bent toward desiring, dwelling upon, and discovering the will of God. So Christians are to take an active part in this process in order to stand against the devil. And so we need to take meditation very seriously as we think and chew upon what we're learning from the Word of God until it becomes part of our spiritual digestive system and it gets to our soul and transforms our soul. And then the last one, would be uh, that of putting off sin and putting on righteousness. Of course, we've been looking at that the first thing to put off is the old way of life, throwing it off. Uh, and then, of course, are those strong, corrupting desires and affections of our own nature uh, that exercise power over us no longer has power over us, so we can say no to it. Secondly, that they are uh, that we are to go on being putting on re, being renewed uh, to a Christ-like way of thinking, uh, as it says in Ephesians four twenty-three, re, be renewed in the spirit of your mind. And a third thing under this one would be that of evidence of a constant inner change in thinking, outlook, and behavior for the believer. That means that learning Christ is the key to the Christian life. That is the ever-growing knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ that rises up out of the pages of Scripture. Uh, that means, that be, that means that we're, we come to the place where we're done with the old kind of life that we used to live. We're done with the old kind of thinking that we used to think, and we want to take on the new life. And that, of course, would lead us to the one that we're going to look at this morning, and that's that, that is of the fifth way to uh, what the believer is to resist the devil is by putting on Christ. By putting on Christ. Now, take your Bibles and turn over to Romans chapter 13 before we look at the Ephesians one. But Romans 13 and then, of course, we're going to be looking at, at Ephesians 6. But Romans 13 says something very, very important. And this, this whole concept of putting on Christ may seem strange because you will ask the question, what does it mean to put on Christ? Well, it says in Romans chapter 12, verse 13, or ver, excuse me, Romans chapter 13, verse 12 uh, ver, through verse 14, it says, the night is almost gone. And the day is near, therefore, let us lay aside the deeds of darkness and put on the armor of light. Verse 13, Romans 13, says, let us behave properly 
as in the day, not in carousing and drunkenness, not in sexual promiscuity and sensuality, not in strife and jealousy. And then in verse 14, notice it says, put on Christ. Put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh in, re- in regard to its lust. So if you notice that putting on Christ also means laying aside the sin that would cause your flesh to lust. Lay aside sin, put on the armor of light, and then, of course, put on the Lord Jesus Christ. So all that goes together. In other words, you can't be going on and loving your sin and be putting on Christ. One or the other will take place. Ephesians chapter 6 is another key passage of Scripture in the study of spiritual warfare. And it says this, and it's on the screen. It says, I want you to notice, though, finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. So Christians must be strong enough to do what is right, to do what the Lord wants them to do, no matter how difficult the task may seem, because the adversary walks up and down the earth to spy out the weaknesses of God's servants to pursue those who are not standing their ground, those who are weak and careless and world influence and led in regard to their lusts. But notice this passage says that we're to do it not in our own strength, but in the strength that God gives us. One of the most unusual creatures of the sea is the lobster. I love lobster. It tastes good with hot butter. I don't understand people who don't like lobster. But lobsters, what's so weird about them is they run backwards. They hear with their legs and taste with their feet. They chew food with teeth in their stomach. And because the lobster is not only delicious food for us, it's also delicious food for other sea creatures. So the Lord gave the lobster a full suit of armor. The thick plate covers its claws, its body, overlapping sheets of armor encased its lower body and tail. Although many old lobsters have numerous scrapes and gorges in their shells, they survive attacks from most predators because the armor that God gave them, protects them. Well, the Lord supplies us also with a suit of armor. He supplies us a helmet, a breastplate, a shield, a belt, shoes, and he does this to keep us safe from the attacks of our powerful spiritual foes. The Apostle Paul commanded us to put on the whole armor of God. If we do, God promises that he will be 
that we will be able to stand against Satan's attacks and wiles. The adversary, of course, is not fair. He is not an honorable combatant. He is sly and fires off fiery arrows of temptation when we least expect it. Sometimes when we're the strongest, sometimes when we're the weakest, and sometimes in between. The Lord knows that we cannot stand against this enemy unprotected. So God provides the protection for us. He provides Christ as the protection. Christians are inadequate to stand alone against demonic assault. So God provides defense. So temptations will not hurt and destroy or make us useless in the kingdom of God. The armor of God is given to believers by the Lord so that they may stand firm. In other words, the armor of God will make you able to stand firm. It will make you able, just as this passage says. Put on the full armor of God so that you will be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness, in the heavenly places. That's where our battle lies. So therefore, we cannot fight that battle by our willpower or by our strength or by any earthly means at all. It must be in the power of the Lord himself. So the believer can stand defensively against the Satan these satanic hosts, when they put their armor on. It's our job to do that. The strength of the Lord gained by utilizing the full armor of God is stronger than all the power of the wicked one and his minions. So when Christians are to hold fast to the territory that God already won for us, and not give it away or let it be taken from us. We are not to give place or ground to the devil. Those are several passages that tell us that already. And so, therefore, the Bible tells us in this passage, therefore, take up the full armor of God so that you will be able to resist in the evil day and having done everything to stand firm. Now, some believe that in the evil day is the day that the enemy decides to point you out and attack you personally. And so, are you ready for that? We should be ready for that. And so, take your Bibles and look at Ephesians chapter 6. And I want you to look and notice these passages that are in the Word of God for our strength and edification, for our learning, 
and it's that of the armor of God, specifically verse 14 through 18, where it says this. Stand firm, therefore, verse 14 of chapter 6, having girded your loins with truth, having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace, in addition to all, taking up the shield of faith, with which you will be able to extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one, and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. Now, what I am saying here this morning is that these six pieces of armor present a different aspect of the way Jesus Christ is the protection for his own children. In other words, Christ himself is every part of the armor for the believer. In fact, if we look at other scriptures, we will find out that Christ is the armor. And that means this, that he is the one protecting his children. And how does he do that? Well, I will not explain all the pieces of the armor this morning, but how he does that is by who he is and how we're to take on each of those pieces of armor that represent who he is and what he does in our behalf. And so we see, first of all, that Jesus is the girdle of truth. He is the truth. For it says in John 14, 6, Jesus says, what does he say there? I am the way, and I am the what? The truth. And the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. So Jesus is the girdle part of the armor. He is the truth. He is also, secondly, he is the, he is the breastplate of righteousness. He's our righteousness, whether it would be a imputed righteousness that's imputed to our account when we believe in Christ. And then also, once we are in Christ and have the righteousness of Christ that the Father sees on our account, no longer sees our sin, but sees the righteousness of Christ, then the Lord begins to impart his practical righteousness so we can live the Christian life, his the righteousness that is called the imparted righteousness. There's imputed righteousness, imparted righteousness. Both of them come to us from the Lord himself. For Corinthians tells us, but by his doing you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. So in other words, Christ is our righteousness. Without his righteousness, no one could be saved. And that righteousness protects us from the attacks of the enemy because the enemy cannot do anything to you. He cannot take that righteousness that God's put on your account away from you. So you are protected by that. And so we need to know in our mind every day when we live our life of these particular doctrines and truths that strengthen us against the enemy And then, of course, as we go on, we see that the Lord, thirdly, is he is our peace. 
where it says the shoes of the gospel of peace. He is our peace and good news, where it tells us in Ephesians 2.14, for he he himself is our peace, who made both groups into one and broke down the barrier, the dividing water. Of course, the groups he's talking about that is the group of the Gentile and the group of the uh, Jew himself. And so the Lord breaks down the wall for both of them so they can be made right with God. And then, of course, he is the shield of faith. Where it says in Scripture in Revelation, And I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse, and he who has sat on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and wages war. He is the faithful one, Jesus Christ. And then that of the last or the fifth one is the helmet of salvation. He is our salvation. It says there in Isaiah, referring uh, to not only the, the prophet, but God himself, that he put a righteous, righteousness like a breastplate and a helmet of salvation on his head and put on garments of vengeance for clothing and wrapped himself with zeal as a mantle. He is our salvation without the Lord in the very name of Jesus, meaning that he has come to save his people from their sin. And then the last one, we see that in Ephesians, that he is the sword of the Spirit. He is the Word of God, that sharp sword. And we know that that sword in Ephesians chapter 6 is not a long sword. It's actually a short sword. It's about 18 inches long. You know what that means? When they're talking about the sword of the Spirit in Ephesians, we're talking about the enemy has gotten so close to you that you have to do close combat with him. In fact, you know, soldiers have a bayonet on their weapon, right? And the bayonet, when you hear the command, fix bayonet, it means that the enemy is so close to you that you are now going to fight with him with a bayonet. That means you see them eyeball to eyeball, nose to nose. It's either them or you, and that's what it's talking about when it's talking about the sword of the Spirit. I'm taking out my close combat sword, and I'm able to detect, to slice, to uh, see where the Satan is lying to me, where he is attacking me, and then being able to resist him in that place where I have the armor of God on. Now, so I bring that all together and summarize, and we see that Christ is our armor, he is the truth, he is our righteousness, he is our peace and good news, he is the faithful one, he is our salvation, he is the word of God. So he is our protection in warfare. And it has always been God's It has always been the lot of God's children while they're here on earth to engage in some kind of spiritual warfare. Some to a greater extent, some to a lesser extent. But nonetheless, everyone at some time will engage in some attack against their uh, remaining corruption, their flesh, where they're dealing with loving the Lord and loving sin or where they're being attacked by the, the world and the world's trying to push 
you or me into its mold, and we, we know that is wrong to think that way, even though the crowd's going that way, to be able to stand alone. And then we know that the enemy is, himself is against us. And so an important lesson that we must all learn is that spiritual war- warfare for the believer, for God's children, is never fought alone, ever. It is the Lord that fights with us and delivers us. So what I would like to consider at this point three Old Testament examples, if for no other reason to encourage us this morning that in our battle, in our struggle in this world, we are not alone as God's children. That's always been the case. But let's see it. Let's take our Bibles now and turn to Joshua. Beginning of your Bible, you'll find that there's a book there called Joshua. And so that would be our first example. That would be that of Joshua chapter 5, verse 13 through 15. Now, as you're turning there, one could imagine, or maybe we couldn't imagine it, how Joshua felt when he found out that the great Moses was not going into the promised land. And then he found out the weight and responsibility for leading Israel to the promised land dropped to his feet. He would have to lead the people in battle. He would have to go from city to city and take that city in battle. He had to take the land that God said he gave him and give it to the people. He would have to lead them to do that. It was very, very, very important for Joshua when he found that out to know, maybe he thought in his mind, is the God that was with Moses, is he going to be with me the same way? Because if he's not, I'm in big trouble. Is he going to be with me and for me? Well, notice the passage that I am looking at, Joshua 5, verse 13 through 15, and let's answer that question. It says now in verse 13, Now it came about when Joshua was by Jericho that he lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, a man was standing opposite him with his sword drawn in his hand. And Joshua went to him and said, Are you for us? Or for our adversaries? Verse 14, he said, no. Rather, I indeed come now as captain of the host of the Lord. And Joshua fell on his face to the earth and bowed down and said to him, what has my Lord to say to his servant? Verse 15, the captain of the Lord's host or the Lord's army is a way to understand that, said to Joshua, Remove your sandals from your feet, for the place where you are standing is holy. What do you think Joshua got from that? Where did that happen before? When Moses was before the burning bush, right? What did did God say to Moses? Moses, take off your sandals, for the ground that you stand on, because I am present, is holy. 
So at that moment, what do you think Joshua knew? God's for me. The God of Moses is with me. And what happened? Well, we know from the rest of Joshua that the Lord let Joshua know that I will be with you and I will fight on your behalf as I did for Moses. And subsequently, the city of Jericho fell and Joshua and the people were given one victory after another after another. And the Lord at that point wanted him to know that the captain of the Lord's army was on his side fighting alongside of him to take all those battles. And we know from Joshua they were outnumbered most of the time. They were not an army. They just came out of the desert. They were going up against walled cities, against armies that had armor and swords and spears and, you know, catapults and all kinds of, you know, instruments of war. We're good at making things that kill people, aren't we? But you know what? Sometimes it's necessary to keep us safe. But in this case... It's not necessary when the Lord's on your side. See, the Lord will win for you. So that's the first example. The second example, I want you to take your Bibles and now turn to 1 Samuel chapter 17. And, uh, well, I have on there verse 45, but I want to go up to verse 32, and then we'll work our way down. Of course, this is David is the example. 1 Samuel 17, verse 32. So what made David able to stand against a much stronger, well-trained enemy like Goliath? This is the story of David and Goliath. You all heard that story. God started teaching David while just a young shepherd boy about the protection and the deliverance that the Lord provides for those who seek him and are his children. So we as Christian soldiers can never forget that the enemy wants to give us a strong sense of hopelessness, especially in close combat, because it is there where we will sense our weaknesses and our vulnerability and how possibly the enemy looks way stronger than we do. How are we going to win? Well, look what it says in verse 32 of 1 Samuel 17. It says this, it says in verse 32, David said to Saul, now David's having a conversation with King Saul, and of course remember, Goliath is taunting the armies of Israel, the Philistines are taunting Israel, and the, these warriors are not making any way with Goliath in their way, and notice what it says there, and it says, David said to Saul, let no man's heart fail on account of him, that's Goliath, your servant will go and fight with this Philistine. Now, David was just a kid. He, he was in his teens at this time. It's kind of like foolish to even think that you could do this against such an enemy. Look at verse 33. Then Saul said to David, you are not able to go against this Philistine to fight with him. You are but a youth. While he has been a warrior from his youth. Verse 34, but David said to Saul, Your servant was tending his father's sheep. When a lion or a bear came and took a lamb from the flock, I went after him and attacked him and rescued it from his mouth. And when he rose up against me, I seized him by his beard and struck him and killed him. 
Verse 36, your servant has killed both the lion and the bear, and this uncircumcised Philistine will be like one of them, since he has taunted the armies of the living God. And then notice verse 17, and David said, notice, the Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and the paw of the bear, he will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. And Saul said to David, go, and may the Lord be with you. Then Saul clothed David with his garments and put a bronze helmet on his head, and he clothed him with Clothe him with armor. David girded his sword over his armor and tried to walk, for he had not tested them. So David said to Saul, I cannot go with these, for I have not tested them. And David took them off. He took his stick in his hand and chose for him five smooth stones from the brook and put them in his shepherd's bag, with which he had even in his pouch. And he, his sling was in his hand, and he approached the Philistine. Then the Philistine came on and approached David with the shield-bearer in front of him. And then notice verse 42. When the Philistine looked and saw David, he's, he disdained him, for he was but a youth and ruddy, with a handsome appearance. The Philistine said to David, Am I a dog that you come to me with sticks? And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. And the Philistine also said to David, Come to me, and I will give your flesh to the birds of the sky and the beasts of the field. Man, let me just stop there. Here's this giant standing before you with armor on with his armor bearer because it was so heavy, and his spear. And David is standing like a little kid with just, as a shepherd, no armor on, at least no physical armor on. So was it Saul's armor he wore to fight? No, his armor didn't fit right, didn't feel right, so he put it off. So what was it? You may say, well, He didn't wear any armor. That's right. He did not wear any armor. He didn't wear Saul's armor. However, he did come with armor. And I want you to notice in verse 45 what it says. 1 Samuel 17, 45. Then David said to the Philistine, You come to me with a sword, a spear, and a javelin. I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have taunted. And then it says this. We all know what happens next in verse number, as it goes on in verse number 46. This day the Lord will deliver you up into my hands, and I will strike you down and remove your head from you, and I will give the dead bodies of the army of the Philistines this day to the birds of the sky and to the wild beasts of the earth that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel. Verse 47, and all this assembly may know that the Lord does not deliver by sword or by spear, for the battle is the Lord's. And he will give, he will give you, 
he will give you into his hands. And of course, what happened in verse 49, it says, and David put his hand into his bag and took from it a stone and slung it and it sunk. It struck the Philistine on the forehead and the stone sank into his forehead so that he fell on his face to the ground. In verse 50, thus David prevailed over the Philistine with a sling and a stone, and he struck the Philistine and killed him, but there was no sword in David's hand. Then David ran and took over the Philistine, stood over the Philistine and took his sword and drew it out of its sheath and killed it and cut off his head with it. When the Philistines saw, when the Philistines saw that their champion was dead, what did they do? They ran. Now, saying all that for this reason, that in this battle, in this battle, what do we see? We see the very presence of the Lord with David, letting him know he was not alone. Joshua needed to know that, that he wasn't alone. David needed to know that, that he wasn't alone. There's another person that needed to know that, and it's probably one you never heard of. And it's the person in Scripture named Joshev Beshebeth. Joshev Beshebeth. Now take your Bibles and turn to 2 Samuel, chapter 23, and we'll be looking at verses there. Now, this particular man was, I'm calling him, David's special warfare operator. He was one of the hardest men in the Bible. His name, again, is Josheb Beshebeth. He was part of an elite squad of military specialists whose loyalty and warcraft were unparalleled at this time. These mighty men were divided into two units. The 30, it was called the 30, and then the 3. And then out of the 3, there was this exceptional warrior. He was the best of the best. And his name was Josheb Beshebeth. And he was the chief. Notice what it says in verse number 8. How did he earn his stripes? How did he get where he rose to that level. It says in 2 Samuel verse 20, chapter 23, verse 8, it says, these are the names of the mighty men whom David had, Joshua, or Joshab Beshebeth, a Tekemenite, chief of the captains. He was called Adino the Esnite because of 800 slain by him at one time. So there's his fame right there. And it says, and after him, Eliezer, son of Dodo of Ahohite, one of the three mighty men with David when they defied the Philistines who were gathered there to battle and the men of Israel had withdrawn, he arose and struck the Philistines until his hand was weary and clung to the sword. And the Lord brought about a great victory that day and the people returned after him only to strip the slain. In other words, that last thing is that the Lord was with Joshua Beshebeth when he killed 
all those 800 in at one time. Now, that's, that's an incredible feat that if someone could actually do that. Well, he did that, but he did not do that in his own strength. He did that under the command of King David. And the reason for that is that King David trusted in God's protection and Joshua Beshebeth also learned to trust in God's protection. In fact, David lived as if he was invincible because of his understanding of God's protection. Look at this passage of Scripture that I have on the screen. Look what it says here. Here's David giving a sense that he felt invincible because of God. It says in verse 30, For by you I can run upon a troop. By my God I can leap over a wall. As for God, his way is blameless. The word of the Lord is tested. He is a shield to all who take refuge in him. For who is God besides the Lord? And who is a rock besides our God? God is my strong fortress, and he sets the blameless in his way. He makes my feet like the hind's feet and sets my, me on my high places. Verse 35, he trains my hands for battle so that my arms can bend a bow of bronze. That's how David felt when he came against his enemy, knowing the Lord was with him and for him. God was fighting both with and for him, which made him bold enough to take on an entire troop of, sing, of, army, of men single-handedly, and that's the same for his chief of command, Joshua Beshebeth. David focused on God's superior power. David held firm to God's promises that he would be with him. And in fact, in other places, you find this in Samuel. It says, David was prospering in all his ways, for the Lord was with him. Now, Joshua Beshebeth trusted in God's protection also. So this man lined himself with the God of the universe. And when God is on your team, the odds totally are different. 800 to 1, that's certain death. But 800 to 1 plus God is no contest. Actually, Joshua Beshebeth came face to face with 800 savage opponents. There was three options he probably had available to him. He could cower. He could run away and hide. Now, so many people will say, well, hey, listen, 800 to 1, that's no battle. Just get out of there. He could compromise. He could drop his weapon and surrender. If you can't beat him, join them. Compromise for conviction, fear for combat. Or he could fight and engage in combat and that's what he did. He didn't focus on his own strength. He did not focus on the ruckus that raged around him. 
what did he focus on? He focused on the awesome God that David served and obviously he served, knowing that he could not go into battle and fight and win without God being for him. He did not go alone. See, faith is when we practice looking beyond the things that would prevent us from having faith in God, things that are against us. And faith is to fix our gaze on the awesome God who is for us. In fact, the most awesome description of God can be found in a passage of Scripture like Isaiah 42, verse 13. Look what it says here. The Lord will go forth like a warrior. He will arouse his zeal like a man of war. He will utter, utter a shout. Yes, he will raise a war cry. He will prevail against his enemies. So that means trust in God's protection should all exempt, also exemplify the Christian. You and me, it should exemplify us that, as the Scripture tells us, that when God, God is able, so then putting on Christ, the armor of God, makes us able. In fact, three times in Scripture, it says it in Ephesians, it says, put on the full armor of God so that you will be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. But putting on the armor of God is a prerequisite. Verse 13, therefore, take up the full armor of God so that you will be able to resist in the evil day, having done everything to stand firm. Ephesians 6.16, in addition to all, take up the shield of faith which with which you will be able to extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. So immortal, immense, unrivaled, unstoppable is our God. The mighty warrior is Jesus Christ the King. That's who is on our side. So who, that's why when we, we hear Romans, Paul say in Romans if God is for us, who can be against us? Nobody can be against us. That's how we have to live our Christian life. We have to live our Christian life. We have to set our fix on our Lord Jesus Christ because our Lord set his face to crush sin. He set his face to crush Satan on the cross. He obliterated our greatest enemy, death. And how did he do that? By rising from the dead and ascending into heaven. That's how he did that. So Jesus is the one who fought for Joshua. Jesus is the one who fought for King David. Jesus is the one who fought for Josheb the Shebeth. And he is the one who fights for us. See, from the beginning of the Bible till now, it has not been any different. Our God, who is the same yesterday, today, and forever, is going to be the same for us. He will not leave us alone. He will be for us. Nothing can rob what God gives to us. 
So remember, there is, there is a power at work in you that is more than a match for anything Satan can hurl at you or me at any time and any point in our journey and on our race to the kingdom of God. So the bottom line that I all, one point I wanted to stress today, it's this, putting on Christ, the armor of God, makes us able, meaning that you're not alone. So don't ever say, I'm alone in this, because you're not. And if you do, then you're believing one of his lies, right? And it's always about what lie you're believing or what what truth are you shunning, right? It's always about that. So this morning, I want to leave you with that, that taking you down this path is giving you a sense of what it means to put on Christ, put on the armor of God, knowing that he has fought the battles and he fights alongside of us in our Christian struggle against the enemy. And that battle has already been won, but God, just like Joshua, had to go fight for the the city, even though God said it's already yours, salvation's already ours, but God says, no, you're going to fight and struggle for it, and I'm going to be with you. It's already yours, but you have to know the struggle. You have to know what it takes. You have to know that this is no simple thing that's happened to you and God granting you salvation. And the greatest warfare combatant who ever lived was Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen? Let's pray. Lord, thank you. What you did, Lord, we're still learning. And the promises, Lord, that you've given us in the word of God, we are also still learning those. But I just pray, Lord, that you would enable us to learn well. that we can be like those warriors of the Old Testament that went into battle, all odds against them, but they went in the name of the Lord their God, and they came out victorious. Not because they had anything in themselves or any kind of special ability. Even soldiers who were trained in battle knew their weaknesses before a stronger enemy than them. And yet, Lord, their strength did not come from their training. Their strength came from their relationship with you, knowing that they served a powerful God. They served a God who was with them and personal. They served a God when they lifted up prayers, they knew their Lord would listen. And they served a God who has given the word of God so we can know the will of God. And Lord, make us strong. Make us able believers that every day we would be firm in the truth. So whatever's thrown at us, whatever circumstance we may find ourselves, I pray, Lord, that we would know you will never leave us or forsake us. And as even in the baptismal formula, the Lord said to his disciples before he left, I will be with you till the end of the age. And then you'll bring us into your presence. And that's the day we're looking forward to.
to, Lord, more than anything else. So, Lord, make us aware of the battle and make us strong soldiers for Christ. And I pray this in your name. Amen. Okay, this morning uh, we have our Lord's table, so let's have our men come forward as we prepare for that. I do want to mention...